0: This is Exodus one one through eight. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family: Reuben, Simon, Levi, and Judah; Issachar, Zebulun, Jeremiah, or I'm sorry, Benjamin made that one up; uh, Dan and <laughs> Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered seventy in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increasing in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power. This is the word of the Lord. Alfred Hitchcock is widely considered one of the greatest filmmakers ever. Um, many people think of him not just as a great director, but as the original great director. His work was, of course, wildly popular in his time, but it's also become the subject of film schools around the world today. And one of the things that made Hitchcock famous or unique is that he made cameo appearances in every one of his films. It was usually a small character, just an extra in the background of a particular scene or uh, a very minor role in, uh, in one of his scenes that didn't have any dialogue or something. And it was really easy for him to pull off because if you're the director, you can jump in front of the camera any time you want as any character that you choose. Now, if you're God, the director of the grand drama of human history, you can pop into the story any time you want, as any one you want. Which should make us wonder, why did God choose to enter the human story when and how he did? Why is it significant that Jesus was born during the reign of a tyrannical king who ordered an infant genocide against all Jewish boys? Why does it matter that Jesus fled his birthplace and grew up in Egypt And why did Jesus insist on being baptized and being baptized in the Jordan River of all places? Why did Jesus' ministry begin not with preaching or miracle working, but instead with 40 days of wilderness wandering and temptation? And why did Jesus ascend a mountain near the beginning of his ministry to deliver what we call the Sermon on the Mount, a manifesto on the ethics of his kingdom? And why did Jesus ascend a different mountain on the other side of his ministry, one where his Clothes became gleaming white with a glow. And why did Jesus time his death for Passover weekend? And why did he make such a big deal of that last Passover meal? I mean, if you're the Hitchcock of human history, you can make a cameo as anyone you want, anytime you choose. If God's directing the story and planning for an appearance, why now and why like this? And the answer to every single one of the questions I've posed is Exodus. Exodus is the event that is referred back to more than any other event in the Torah as the biblical story moves forward. Prophets, poetry, gospels, and New Testament letters, all of it refers back to Exodus as a time when God showed us what he's like, when he revealed his character, when God told us his name. So today's a pretty big day for us as a church. We're beginning a new teaching series. It's going to carry us through the whole of the summer, simply titled Exodus, because that is exactly what it is. We are going to work our way scene by scene through the Exodus story, not leaving a single syllable of a single verse unturned as we make our way through. And by the way, each time we do a new teaching series, we have these bookmarks available that have recommended resources. Uh, Always uh, reading books that we're stocking in our bookstore that we'd suggest to pair with the teaching, but also online resources if you'd find that helpful as well. So just so you know, that's why we're the only people on earth still giving out bookmarks. It's us and Powell's, (laughs) but, but that's why. But I, I want to start our own Exodus journey today by asking the question that should be asked of any modern audience when looking back at an ancient epic Why should I care about the Exodus story at all? In short, Jesus. Because if you want to understand Jesus, you have to understand Exodus. You see, for Jesus, Exodus served as the framing backstory that supercharged all of his actions with cosmic significance. Reading Jesus without Exodus is like listening to Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech without any knowledge of the transatlantic slave trade that framed uh, the civil rights movement. Or it's like reading the diary of Anne Frank without any knowledge of Nazi Germany, or just like walking into the climactic scene of a film that you've seen none of. It's not useless. I mean, you can still be moved by King's Cadence or by Anne Frank's writing or even by a well-shot scene. But it's also not charged with all the meaning that the moment is meant to carry because you've isolated the event from the broader story. Exodus is that. It is the framing backstory that supercharges the Jesus story, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus with cosmic significance. The 2003 film Big Fish stars Ewan McGregor, but McGregor's face does not actually appear in front of the camera in the film's opening five minutes. The story opens by following one man's life from childhood all the way to his deathbed as he tells this one seamless story. The camera cuts from scene to scene, cutting from him being tucked in as a child in his bed, to captivating a Boy Scout troop around a campfire as a young father, to charming his teenage son's prom date in the living room, to dazzling the room at his son's rehearsal dinner, all the way to his deathbed. The scenes cutting through the scenes of this man's life, but the dialogue seamless through all of it. He's telling a story, this one story that he's never stopped telling. It's a story that frames the whole of his life. And the movie Big Fish is that very story, the first five minutes story. You already know where the film is going before any of it begins, but all the drama that unfolds afterwards is the unpacking of that story. The film's major movements are given to you in the opening credits before the lead even shows his face on the screen. This first five minutes is the story in micro form of the epic drama that's going to unfold for you in macro form. And that's essentially how the Bible is written. Exodus, the Bible's second book, is the first five minutes of Big Fish. It is the whole of the biblical drama told in micro form. Creation, enslavement, liberation, renewal, all of it made possible by a deliverer, a firstborn son, who's resisted the very temptations that have enslaved us, whose death becomes blood on the doorpost of every home that calls him Lord, and whose life uh, becomes a meal to feast on for you and me as we gather together at the table. When I say all of that, am I talking about Jesus or am I talking about Exodus? Yes! Literary critic Northrop Frye once commented, Exodus is the only thing that ever happens in the Bible. So I want to show you the whole of the biblical story packed into this Exodus story by looking backward and then looking forward and ultimately looking to Jesus. So we'll start with Exodus points back. So if you've already closed your Bible, open it again to Exodus 1, just keep it open on your lap to that reference. Everywhere else we go in the scriptures today will be on the screen, but for the teaching texts that Jenny read for us a moment ago, I'd love if you would just follow along in the story with me. So we'll start there, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, the descendants of Jacob, numbered 70 in all, Joseph was already in Egypt. You know, as far as opening lines go, it could use a bit of work, could it? I mean, typically, you'd open with some dramatic moment to draw the audience in and get to the family tree later. Like, how many of us had the hair standing up on the backs of our neck when the teaching text was read a minute ago? And yet, if you were an ancient Israelite, hearing this like the first hearers did, intrigue would be the exact response you would have at these opening lines. You see, the way Exodus, the Bible's second book, starts is intriguing because of the way that Genesis, the Bible's first book, ends. This is Genesis 46. These are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his descendants who went to Egypt. And what follows in Genesis chapter 46 is a family tree. A family tree headlined by Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The very same names. Exodus begins, The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Genesis ends, The members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt were 70 in all. The author of Exodus is unmistakably framing this scroll as a sequel, picking up exactly where Genesis has left off. And the reason that that is so important is because Genesis is not just the story of God and some guy named Adam. It is the story of God and Adam, a Hebrew word that is not a personal name but a general word meaning man or mankind or person. The Genesis story is the human story, it is the backdrop that frames all of human history. So at a few opening lines that make you and I yawn, the ancients gasped, why? Because the author of Exodus is unmistakably claiming that this is not just the story of God and one guy named Moses. It is the human story, the backdrop that frames all of history, my story and yours. Now don't misunderstand me here. Exodus is the true story of a people. It belongs to them in a personal way. Way, But Exodus is equally the story through which God will reveal himself and bless the whole world. It's a story whose themes are retold in the personal life of everyone who calls this God named Yahweh, Lord. But we're just getting started. Let's go back to our teaching text now, picking up where we left off in verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful... And they multiplied greatly, increasing in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. The first five verses of Exodus hyperlink us to the end of Genesis. The following two verses hyperlink us to the beginning of Genesis, all the way back to Eden. And it all happens in these two famous words fruitful and multiply. It's the original creation mandate given to man and woman, or Adam and Eve at first, given again as a blessing over exodus genesis 1 so god created mankind in his own image in the image of god he created the male and female he created them god blessed them and said be fruitful and multiply the biblical drama does not begin with a messed up world in need of fixing or an oppressed people in need of a deliverer it begins with paradise not brokenness with peace not oppression all of it in a place called eden And the Exodus drama does not begin with a messed up world in need of fixing or an oppressed people in need of deliverer. It begins with paradise, not brokenness, with peace, not oppression, all of it in a place called Egypt. But then, like an uninterrupted or an unwelcome intruder, verse 8 barges in. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Now we're going to get a whole lot more into this new king next week, but what you should know today is that the introduction of this king exactly mirrors the introduction of a serpent in Genesis three, uh, under the ban- which is where the whole story, like the wheels, come off of the whole beautiful story under the banner of what we typically label the fall. When paradise is replaced with brokenness and struggle, peace with conflict and freedom with oppression, all of it at the hands of this one deceiver with a crafty scheme to stop the fruitful multiplication of God's people, to interrupt the blessing of God with a curse. The Genesis story is interrupted by a crafty schemer. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. The Exodus story is interrupted by a crafty schemer. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. And if we read on from there, we'll quickly come to, Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. A link back to the serpent. Or they will become far, t- even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and will fight against us and leave the country. It's another deceiver with another crafty scheme. A scheme to do what? To interrupt the blessing of God with a curse, to stop the fruitful multiplication Of God's people. The author of Exodus is framing Israel's story in light of the human story. In a few opening lines, the reader is being cued and cued and cued and cued. The events that unfold are about, not about just a few people in a far-off place, they're about you and me, about all of us. This is the story of Creator and creation, the beauty of a promising start, the tragedy of present pain, and the way God deals with all of it. You see, Exodus reaches back as a setup because what Exodus is really trying to do is point forward. Pop singer songwriter Ed Sheeran won a Grammy in 2016 for this song. When my hair's all begun and my memory fades. How do you guys feel about this song? The first room really didn't like it. I have no opinion, I just found it sociologically fascinating. That Grammy was later shrouded in controversy because he was accused of copyright infringement against this song. Yeah, I know, sultry for a Sunday morning. Hold that thought for just a second. So the Old Testament can be summarized as Torah, Kings, Poetry and Prophets, 39 books grouped into four major categories. When God began to reveal his law to Israel, first in the Ten Commandments and then over the 600 plus commands in the pages that follow, the grounding logic for all of the laws and the moral festivals was this event called Exodus. You see, the events in this micro-story make sense of God's laws that are governing this community that he is reforming in his image on the earth. This is a phenomenon summed up by the theologian N.T. Wright as, there are two liberation journeys in Exodus. The first is to get Israel out of slavery. The second is to get slavery out of Israel. It's an acknowledgement that the law is the long, slow journey to get free internally. It takes a breakthrough moment to become objectively free. It takes a lifetime of reformation to begin to live a life that matches that freedom when all you've ever known is bondage. You see, the law is the life of a recovering addict at his first AA meeting. A breakthrough has occurred, some rock-bottom moment that caused me to redemptively cry, help But of course, full redemption is not that on this one particular evening I'm finding myself seated at a folding chair in a church basement instead of seated uh, on a bar stool at a pub. That is just the first step toward redemption. It's one that needs to be followed by a thousand more steps of reformation from the inside out so that I can begin to experience the freedom available to me on the other side of breakthrough. And that's the law. It's freedom. It's the second liberation journey, the long walk to freedom that the breakthrough makes possible. But the Torah, the the first major group of the Old Testament, it contains more than just law. First, it contains A covenant. God formed a covenant with a barren elderly couple, and the fruit of that covenant was going to be a child that would grow into a nation. Israel is that nation, a people born from covenant. And as the story unfolds, Exodus is continually referred back to as the event by which God confirmed the covenant. For example, Deuteronomy 6. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Covenant was common language in the ancient world. It meant the most binding sort of promise. In our modern society, we've mostly replaced the language of covenant with the language of contract. You see, all of our big decisions, our most binding promises, they get sealed with a contract. If you take out a bank loan or purchase a home or receive a job offer, there's always a contract when that kind of commitment's involved. With one exception, marriage. You know, while a bride and groom do sign a marriage contract, that contract is only made viable by vows. Vows must be said, a covenant must be spoken aloud and sealed, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. Marriage is the one covenant that we have left in modern society. But of course, vows are just words. Words. I mean, modern divorce rates make it plain to us that vows can be, and often are, broken. We're more than capable of making promises that we then fail to keep, and so a covenant is a promise that is sealed by vows, but it still must be confirmed by experience. Thirteen years ago, Kirsten and I stood in front of friends and family, and we made promises to each other. We made vows. But how do I know that she meant it? By experience. By experience. By her actions to me on all the days after the ceremony, by walking beside me when I'm at my best or at my worst, by living with me through times of plenty and scarcity, by caring for me when I'm sick, and by still being here some 4,745 days, but who's counting? <laughs> after the vows were spoken. Exodus says Deuteronomy is the experience of God's covenant, it's the evidence. That God meant the promises he made and will keep them. And then comes Kings. As the history of Israel unfolds on the other side of enslavement, the biblical authors are insistent that the character of God revealed in Exodus is the same in today's generation as to the ancients. Uh, that's a theme that's continued through the books of Joshua. It's named directly in First and Second Samuel and in First and Second Kings. Exodus is a story that's referred back to so that a new generation would know that this is who God is and this is how he deals with us. You keep on turning page in scripture and you go from kings into poetry and the psalms are peppered with references back to Exodus. This artistic way of seeing what God did that would then open my eyes and set my expectations for what God does. In other words, the way God revealed himself in Exodus should set my expectation for the way that God will reveal himself to me. That is the theme of Psalm 78, 105, 106, 114, and 136, to name a few. The books of poetry tell us that the Exodus is the event that teaches us how to see, how to pray, how to praise. And rounding out the Old Testament, we come to the prophets. The prophets pointed to the future by reaching back to Exodus. For example, uh, the prophet Isaiah, who lived under a new oppressor, Babylon, Prophesied from within that place of oppression, a shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse. That's words that we frequently read around the holidays. We sing it in Advent hymns and we celebrate it on Christmas Eve while holding lit candles. But Isaiah made that forward-pointing promise about the arrival of the Messiah in Jesus by reaching back to Exodus. Read with me from the very same chapter, Isaiah 11. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. You guys, tracking? I know that's a bit more dense than usual. Let's go back to Marvin Gaye versus Ed Sheeran. Lighten the mood a touch. So what's the big deal, right? Like, why the lawsuit? Because uh, the lyrics are different. The recordings are entirely different. Why the lawsuit? The melody. The lawsuit was entirely about the melody. The chord progression in these two songs is identical. In fact the smoking gun was Ed Sheeran in one of his own concerts seamlessly weaving these two songs together back and forth because the music matches so closely. Now of course for all of you Ed Sheeran fans out there he was absolved and found innocent. I'm simply trying to point out that all the drama comes down to one factor the melody. And that is what we're tracing through the Hebrew Bible, and it's what is most plainly revealed in Exodus, the melody. Exodus continues a Genesis melody that plays underneath the whole of the biblical story. Sure, the lyrics change and the recordings sound different, but there's something eerily familiar about every turn in the story. The chord progression is identical. Creation, enslavement, liberation, renewal. Creation, enslavement, liberation, renewal. Creation, enslavement, liberation, renewal. That is the whole of the biblical story. It is the melody that never stops playing. Listen to that very melody on into the New Testament. In Romans 8, the apostle Paul uses Exodus imagery to explain the fate of all creation, subjected to futility now, but creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and the glory of the children of God. The fate of all of Israel from uh, from Egyptian slavery points forward to the fate of all of creation. Creation, enslavement, liberation, renewal. Creation, enslavement, liberation, renewal. It's the melody of Galatians 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent his, the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. The actions of the father, son, and spirit work together to bring about an exodus liberation in the inner being of everyone who would cry, Help, our cries reaching God's ear just as the cries of the enslaved Israelites did back in Exodus. In 1 Corinthians, Jesus is called our Passover lamb. That's Exodus language. In Revelation 15, pointing to the reunification of heaven and earth and the redemptive end of the story, we're told that the angels are singing a familiar melody. They held harps given them by God and sang the songs of God's servant Moses and of the lamb. Exodus is a tune that never stops humming underneath the biblical story. It's the first five minutes of Big Fish. It's the micro story that unfolds in full form in all the drama that follows. And now that you've got the story as a whole, let's look at the director's cameo. Exodus reveals Jesus. Scripture contains four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, meaning there's four biographies of the life of Jesus. They're the exact same story, just told from four different perspectives. And Exodus is the melody, it's the soundtrack, underneath every last one of them. We'll start with Matthew. He's probably the most obvious. In his first five chapters, Matthew replays all the Exodus highlights through the events of Jesus' life. He describes the baptism of Jesus that began his ministry as a wind-guided passage through the waters. That's a direct reference back to the crossing of the Red Sea, the climactic scene of Exodus. Exodus. From there, Jesus is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days of testing, mirroring Israel's 40 days of wilderness, wandering in Exodus. Exodus. Then, of course, comes the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus climbs a high mountain to deliver a law. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you, Jesus quotes again and again from the law of Moses, delivering a new Torah. John summarizes it this way: For the law was given through Moses; grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's Exodus language for a new Exodus deliverer with a new covenant. The Gospel of Matthew, you see, it's the soundtrack, uh, or the soundtrack of it, is Exodus. And then we'll come to Mark, Mark chapter nine. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Now both Moses and Elijah had had memorable encounters with God on this very mountain. And in Moses' case, his face began to glow so brightly just as Jesus' clothes did in this moment that he had to wear a veil just so people could look at him when he came out of the presence of God. The transfiguration, which is recorded here by Mark and elsewhere by Matthew and Luke as well, is an exodus reenactment, the last major exodus reenactment before the most obvious one, when Jesus becomes the Passover lamb on Passover weekend on a cross that pays for the sin of the world. Do you hear the melody? Let's look at Luke. Of all the gospel writers, Luke devoted the most real estate to the birth of Jesus. Exodus is a story of the birth of Moses, a child who was hidden in a basket, a a deliverer who was born under the commanded genocide of an insecure tyrant. Luke is the story of Jesus, a child who was hidden in a manger, a new deliverer born under the new commanded genocide of a new insecure tyrant. Moses, a Jewish child, grew up in Egypt in Pharaoh's house of all places, saving his life. Jesus, a Jewish child, grew up in Egypt, a refugee escaping from Herod's house, saving his life. Luke's account of Jesus' glowing transfiguration, that Moses reenactment, it reads this way. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his exodus which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And Luke's final scene is an appearance of the resurrected Jesus to his disciples in the upper room where he says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. But John, John's my favorite. John's gospel opens with poetry. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us we've seen his glory the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth it's poetry in my ears but it was scandal to those who first heard it you see the hebrew word for glory is kavod and you'll find that all over the old testament it was a one-word summary for the weight the greatness the power of god and there's a famous scene right at the heart of the exodus story where Moses asks God to see his glory, his kavod. And God responds, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. In context, he's saying, no one can see my kavod without dropping dead on the spot. But I will let you glimpse my back, Mo. That's all you can handle. The New Testament scholar Friedland Stier says, this is the apex, the ultimate, the extreme allowed to any theology, any philosophy, and any scholarship, the back of God provided they really desire to see his face. You see, that kind of reverence, that is the common spirituality of the people that John is writing to. So John, writing to a people who held such reverence for God, they trembled at his presence and dared not look at his face, begins his story. We have seen his kavod, his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. He is saying, the glory that would have killed Moses on the spot, I've seen it. And you have too. You see, that's the scandal of John's poetry. That face, the face of Jesus, that common face with bags under his tired eyes and a crooked nose and beads of sweat on his forehead, that is the face that not even Moses could glimpse and stay standing on his own two feet. William Barclay, this is possibly the greatest verse in the New Testament and certainly the sentence for which John wrote his gospel. Jesus is the kavod, the glory of Yahweh, disguised in human flesh. John's imagery for Christ's arrival was then borrowed by the Apostle Paul for Christ's promised second arrival. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Glory came disguised as one of us that we might become like him. He will come again and he will take on the full glory that he disguised the first time glowing in plain view. Exodus, that is the melody of the life of God on earth. It's the melody of all the promises that are fulfilled in Jesus and it's the melody of all the promises we still await the full fulfillment of in Jesus. So just over a week ago, I was in the UK doing some teaching and without going into detail, the last month has been the most trying medical month of my life. I have had a cluster of health problems that hit me all at the same time ranging from severe to routine resulting in a month full of illness, the most long suffering season of illness that I have known to this point. And in this month, as I was awaiting diagnosis and uncertainty and all that comes along with that, I prayed continually the prayer of David in Psalm 23. Green pastures, still waters or the valley of the shadow of death. I just want to feel your rod and your staff comforting me, Lord. Wherever I have to walk, if I just know you're walking with me, that will comfort me. I thought I was on the up and up when time for this travel rolled around, that it had been a long, dark valley, but I'm out of it now, and it's off to a fun trip. Unfortunately, I caught a nasty stomach bug on the flight over there, and I wasn't able to keep anything down for days. I awoke on Sunday morning, the first of three consecutive days of teaching there, and I sat in prayer, unable to stomach even a little bit of coffee, and I prayed, God, it's such a privilege to be here. I know that and your rod and your staff have comforted me though this valley is one I never would have wanted to walk in I have felt you with me a number of points on the journey but your rescue that's coming far too slow where's the rescue so I made it through that day's teaching still sick still can't stomach a bite to eat but I made it and that evening I was treated to what I can only honestly describe as the fanciest dinner I have ever sat down to in my life. We were outdoors on a perfect night in the English countryside in a barn built in the 15th century with a stone-tiled roof. Our host had hired a private chef to surprise us with this beautiful dinner and he was cooking Mediterranean, which is my favorite. I mean, it was homemade pitas and roasted lamb and couscous and salad and dips of every variety. I don't know why. I honestly can't explain this to you, but just nothing does it for me like mashed up chickpeas. Nothing ever has. I don't think anything ever will. It was hard to resist. I felt like I might be able to eat just a little bit. So for the first time in days, I scoop a little bit of food onto this big fancy plate. And as I looked around at this gorgeous setting and at the company that was surrounding me and at the food on my plates, I could almost audibly hear the Spirit's gentle whisper, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And I felt the Lord asking me this question, Tyler, what kind of rescue comes in that prayer you've been praying? Psalm 23. Cuz there's other psalms, there's other prayers of David where he says things like, "Lord, pick me up out of the valley, lift me out of the slimy pit." But not Psalm 23. Psalm 23 rescue is not removal from the valley. It is blessing in the midst of the valley. It's your head anointed with oil and your cup overflowing and a table set for you in the presence of your enemies. So there I am looking around at the gorgeous setting, the company, the food on my plate. And it was like oil being poured on my head and my cup being filled until it was overflowing all over the table. And that table somehow in my imagination, it was a table right there in the presence of my enemies, a feast in the midst of my trial. And I ate a few bites, just a few. And as I did, I had tears awkwardly welling up behind my eyes. (laughs) Because for everyone else, this was a surprisingly fancy dinner on another as ordinary evening. But for me, it was a table in the presence of my enemies. Because suddenly the scene had been transformed by the sudden and startling awareness of the presence of the living God right there with me. And it was holy ground. The really famous moment in the Exodus story, the inciting incident that leads to all the drama about plagues and parting seas and bread from the sky, it's this burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Now the English burn up is the Hebrew akal. Can you say that? Well done. Some of you better than others. I heard that from a few of you. And Aaron appreciates that. Uh, a better translation of this verse, because this word means to eat, is not the, the it was on fire and did not burn up, but Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it was not eaten up. Now, the author of Exodus has gone to great pains to connect his story back to Genesis, right? To frame the Exodus story as a recreation against the backdrop of Genesis creation. And here, in the inciting incident, the defining moment, we're told, so there's this tree, this one tree that stands out from all of the other ones, that really catches the eye, and Moses noticed. It's almost when she saw that the tree was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of the fruit and she ate it. You can hear the echo of the Genesis inciting incident, only this time we're told the tree was not eaten up. So Moses approaches the burning bush and there he encounters God. He hears God speaking to him and he takes off his shoes because this ordinary place has become extraordinary by the sudden and startling awareness of the presence of the living God. Moses is slipping off his shoes in front of a burning bush. I'm nibbling fancy falafel on the English countryside. You've got your own moments. Moments when suddenly you realize that it was God who was with you. That it was God who was speaking to you. And what follows is fascinating. God thrusts greatness onto Moses, and then Moses responds with the question. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? It's this really roundabout way of, of Moses asking God God's name. You know that awkward moment when you're in conversation with somebody and you learned their name earlier in the conversation, but now you realize that you've forgotten it? And you're terrified because all you can think about is that you're going to be stuck in some moment where you have to say their name and you're going to have to come clean. I'm terrible with names. Peter, it's great to see you today, by the way. I'm terrible with names. So I find myself in this moment quite frequently. uh, And I know by experience that there are two safe ways out when you get in that moment. Peter, it's great to see you, by the way. So glad you're here, man. Got one. Okay, so there's two safe ways out. One is... You introduce someone else to the person whose name you've forgotten and then pause. Like, oh hey, by the way, do you know Sarah? This is Sarah. (laughs) And you just hang back and and they fill the void by introducing themselves. That's the best way. Another way that can work is you just panic, find a way out of the conversation, go to Sarah privately and say, hey Sarah, I forgot this guy's name, can you go meet him and then feed me the name later. Moses goes with some fumbling combination of the two strategies. He says, all right, let's just say, God, hypothetically, that I do go to rescue the people, and they ask who sent me, and I tell them it was you, but then they're like, yeah, well, if it was him, then tell us his name. Now, God, in that scenario, what do you want me to tell them? Who are you kidding, Moses? You forgot his name. It's obvious. It's even more obvious if we read this story in Hebrew, because... Up until this moment in the Exodus story, the Hebrew title Elohim, which we translate Lord, is the only name used to identify God. Never once in Exodus until the burning bush is God called by the personal Yahweh, which is really interesting because again, Exodus is framed to mirror Genesis, where God is called Yahweh again and again and again by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all those who know him personally. Now, Yahweh is conspicuously absent. The subtext for the Hebrew reader throughout Exodus' introduction is, we don't know exactly when, but at some point along the way, Israel forgot God's name. Yahweh is a personal name for God. Elohim is a title. If you leave here and go see the doctor, you'll call the doctor, Doctor. Doctor. But when she leaves work tonight and goes home, her husband won't call her doctor. He'll call her by her name. So what's the difference? It's intimacy. The more intimacy there is in a relationship, the less formally and the more personally we interact with each other. The subtext underneath the Exodus story up to the burning bush is we don't know when, but at some point, Israel's relationship to God grew less personal To the point that they forgot his name. And that is so important. Because in the Hebrew imagination. A name is not just the collection of syllables. By which a person is called. A name is the summary of a person's character. It is the smallest summary. Of the whole of their person. Israel forgot God's name. Meaning they forgot what God is like. They forgot who God had already to that point. Revealed himself to be Exodus is not really a story about Israel. It's not a story about Pharaoh. It's not even mainly a story about Moses. Exodus is a story about God. It's a story about forgetting God and who God is and what that means for me right now. And it's a story about rediscovering God's name, rediscovering his person and his character because he comes to show me himself again even in the darkest of valleys and circumstances I never would have walked into. If you read on from this famous burning bush moment, you will discover what Moses discovered, God's name. He's a God who hears and a God who cares. I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. Moses, I'm sorry, Exodus introduces us to a God who hears and cares and Jesus were reintroduced to a God who at the peak of his popularity when the crowd around him had built into a mob and they were just about to rip branches out of trees and the shirts off their own backs to call him king. It was then that Jesus heard the voice of a single blind man named Bartimaeus calling him by name from the roadside and he diverted his victory march to care for and heal one man calling his name and jesus were reintroduced to yahweh to the god who hears the god who cares in exodus we discover a god who defends the lord will fight for you you need only be still that was yahweh's simple message on the banks of the red sea and jesus were reintroduced to a god so righteous in anger at the oppression of his people that he flips tables in order to defend the bullied and speak up for the voiceless, the God who defends. In Exodus, we discover a God who provides, raining down bread from heaven for his people day after day. And Jesus, we're reintroduced to a God who provides, one who sets a buffet table in the wilderness with more than enough in Exodus, we discover a God who forgives, and Jesus were reintroduced to a God who forgives, a God who picks up an adulterous woman who is caught in the midst of her shame, picks her up not to condemn her, but to redeem her restore her, and forgive her. In Exodus, we discover a God who redeems. and Jesus, were reintroduced to a God who goes into both the spiritual and family history of a blind man to repair the deepest kind of trauma that's taken root in his gut. The God who redeems, who redeems even the places in me that seem untouchable, unchangeable, and irredeemable. And not a single one of those people who met the God revealed in Jesus picked themselves up by their own bootstraps, or cracked some spiritual code, all of them were encountered by God, by a sudden and startling awareness of the presence of the living God in their ordinary life. All of them were Moses slipping off his shoes in front of a burning bush, or me nibbling on fancy falafel in the English countryside. Exodus is not a story about a people who figure out a way to escape. It's a story about a God who rescues, about a God who will never stop coming to rescue. And so I wanna close with the question, if that's who God is, what does it mean for me? Take an inventory of your life the external circumstances of your life right now, and also the internal dynamics and the way that you're interacting with it all. The needs that you're carrying, the insults, accusations, attacks, condemnations that you're feeling, the lack that you are enduring, the guilt or shame that's rattling around your noisy mind, the past pain that is stubbornly sticking around and defining your present. If God really listens and God really cares, if He defends and provides and forgives and redeems, if that's who God is, then what does it mean for me? So there I am, nervously nibbling on a little falafel ball at a table out of Downton Abbey in the English countryside. Only for me, who prayed that very morning, Lord, you are taking too long on the rescue. For me, it was a table in the presence of my enemies set for me by the Lord himself. If that's who God is, what does it mean for me? It means surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's where the prayer ends. That prayer that I've been praying that starts with still waters and green pastures in the valley of the shadow of death. That prayer that... Includes a God who rescues by anointing me with oil, by uh, filling my cup to overflowing, and by setting a table for me. It ends with surely goodness and mercy will follow me. It's not a prayer of pursuit, it's a prayer about a God who pursues. It's not a prayer about finding God, but about being found by God. It's not a prayer of escape, it's a prayer of rescue of the God who comes to rescue me. Exodus is not a story about a people who escape. It's a story about a God who rescues. And the gospel has never been about success stories. It's always been about the stunning and magnificent discovery of God's name, of who God is and all that means for me. The stories about him, not about me. It's not about a people who escape. It's about a God who rescues. And His name is Jesus.